You're listening to The Mumbrella Cops. The Mumbrella Cops. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis, and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is the Mumbrella team from multiple locations around Australia coming to you from Tasmania, Tim Burrows. Hello, hello. And joining us from Melbourne, Olivia Crimmel. Hello. And Callum Jaspin. Hello. And here with me in the studio in Sydney, Xander Wilson. G'day, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Xander will chat with Ticker CEO Aaron Young about why the Ticker business model of advertising as editorial works. We have about 70 interviews a day and around half of those people buy their clips after they've done the interview. They're not forced to come on and pay. Um, We don't charge them if they come on for an interview. Establishing Ticker as a stateless news source. There is someone roughly your age in London or in New York or in San Francisco or in Auckland or in Singapore looking for the same stories. And the future of linear television and TV ratings. Free-to-air television has changed. They acknowledge themselves that it has changed. The TV industry linear is trying to get rid of overnight ratings. Once upon a time, that would never happen. But first, the week's topics. Clemenger Group under the microscope after announcing profits while staff voiced their frustration. And strengthening of the media and marketing industry as more senior expats return to Australia. Earlier this week, Mumbrella published a story reporting that Clemenger Group profits for 2020 were similar to its 2019 results. The financial results, uh, which Mumbrella saw and confirmed with Chairman Robert Morgan, were accompanied by commentary from a group of the company's employees suggesting that there was significant dissatisfaction around those profits being achieved while employees had to apparently make significant sacrifices. Olivia, you broke the story on Tuesday after a lengthy investigation, and I know you've had a number of conversations and additional complaints about the agency group come through since the story ran. Uh, Can you give us a quick rundown for those who may not have seen the story and maybe an update on the situation at the moment? Yes, Damien, uh, Clemenger Group's profits for 2020 uh, were sent through to us um, and they showed that the group had profit in line with its 2019 figures, which considering a drop in revenue of around 13% is quite astounding. Um, While managing to make a profit during a difficult year is impressive, the main issue is that it appears that staff were forced to bear the brunt of that profit. Um, taking 15% pay cuts from the 1st of April to the end of December in addition to forced annual leave at that reduced rate and additional workload due to redundancies and also departures. So for comparison, uh, staff costs in 2019 were $185.2 million, while in 2020 uh, they were down to $166.6 million, equating to a $24.5 million drop. So as you can imagine, staff are quite frustrated about this and, and have been coming to us. I've been inundated with messages since the story broke. Uh, there's additional complaints actually learned at um, labelled in terms of how the management has treated staff throughout this period. There's a raft of different complaints, which we will be looking into. So let me just get this very straight. The complaints that have come through, what we're seeing is the profit was similar and the complaints are essentially we've been asked to take various cuts or the change in working conditions has been significant. Uh, 
are they asking for uh, money to be returned or salary to be returned or days off to be returned? What's the, the feeling there? I think that is the case. I think the fact that the company has come out at the end of the year with a strong financial position and, as I mentioned, a, a profit equivalent to its uh, previous year's profits, I think staff are quite uh, dismayed that the management has not then gone back to them and said, okay, you guys worked really hard. You took a 15% pay cut. We made you take annual leave. You know what? We're going to, now that we've actually come out of this uh, in a good shape, we're actually now going to give you back some of those wages that we uh, made you forego during that period. And look, 1st of April last year, it was a very difficult period for all Australian businesses. But what I think we've seen a lot of companies do since is actually look and go, okay, staff, we realise we made you do this and we're grateful for your contributions to the company and the fact that, you know, you've you've continued to work on from home and from under difficult circumstances and we're now in actually a pretty good financial situation, we're, we're going to repay some of those uh, pay cuts that were enforced during that period. The fact that it went all the way to the end of the year as well, given that a lot of companies it was only a sort of temporary thing for Q2 or maybe Q2 and Q3, the fact that from the outset it said till the end of the year is also quite surprising and we do have um, copies of that documentation that was circulated internally within Clemenger Group saying that the pay cuts would be enforced from 1st of April to 31st of December. You spoke to... Chairman Robert Morgan about this. He's obviously the chairman of Clemenger Group, which includes a number of agencies within it. How did he react when you brought uh, some of this information to him? Yes, Robert, uh, I had a, several conversations with him and initially he was quite surprised that we were questioning that they had managed to make a profit because I think in his eyes making a profit is what businesses are supposed to do and good management are supposed to do. I mean, his words were that they were very proud of how the company had performed over the past 12 months. He was very proud of the people and proud of the management. So it is surprising then to hear that so many staff have since come forward with complaints about the management, given that at least from the executive chairman's perspective, it's, you know, all all guns firing, everything's going really well and there are no issues. Tim, of course, businesses are meant to make profit. That's what they're set up to do. How do you see this situation? Yeah, look, I, I suppose I at least partly think we'll Back in the days when I owned Mumbrella, how would I have thought about a profit and thought about life, I guess, this time last year or slightly earlier than that as things were going on? And one of the things to remember is it was a pretty scary time to be running a business for all of these organisations because nobody knew how bad it was going to be. You know, I remember the tone of the Mumbrella casts we were we were recording, you know, this time last year, and it was kind of apocalyptic. You know, it was um, it looked like it was going to be incredibly bad for the industry. You know, people for there, there was a moment when a lot of revenue was turned off, not just for media companies, but for agencies. Now, what happened was the tap came back on quite quickly. In the meantime, you know, as, 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 as Liv's touched on, um, a lot of companies uh, claimed JobKeeper. Um, and one of the things to remember about that is, you know, I think some one of the suggestions from staff is it, maybe it's not the main suggestion, but the suggestion maybe Clems should pay back some of the JobKeeper. I guess one thing to remember about that is it was a payment from the government to give companies the confidence to keep staff. 
you know, it wasn't a loan. It wasn't something that they were going to have to pay back later because that wouldn't have given the certainty to keep staff. For some reason, I never much like the likes of Harvey Norman, you know, when you, you, you see them always seeming to cash in. But I've got sympathy on the sort of criticisms that have been made of big organisations like that for keeping JobKeeper. You know, it was... It was money made available so that people could be confident they could safely keep their staff, you know. Um, and I guess when we're, you know, we should probably sort of declare a bit of a kind of, you know, self-interest. You know, we, you know, um, Umbrella's parent company, Diversified, was one of those ones which which had um, needed to claim JobKeeper because we've got a lot of exposure in the in the events world. And it's also worth mentioning we were among the people who are asked to reduce our um our working calendar to four days a week and and like clems that went right through to the end of the year so we were we were in that situation too um but you know i suppose one of the things to you know to to, to robert morgan's point is yes our businesses do need to make a return and i was just doing a sort of back of the envelope calculation as we were chatting you know in in lives reporting a, a net profit of 50 million on a reduced turnover of um about um 320 million now that's about give or take a 15 percent return and i think most people think of a well-run you know, a really well-run agency group would be 15 or maybe 20%. And Clems has had a reputation over a number of years, which is why it's been able to grow to the scale it is of, of, of maybe doing around 20%. I know I've talked to agency bosses in the past who've uh, sort of within the group have, have been asked to do that number. Um, and the thing to remember about that is, although it's now majority owned by Omnicom, it's still in part owned by local shareholders, most of those being staff, former or current. And the profit is what pays the dividend. And if there's no profit, there's no dividend. Um, you know, and as we were recording this, you know, O Media had their annual report, uh, an annual a, annual general meeting came out, came out today as we we're recording it. And, you know, great example, no dividend whatsoever because of how tough things are in, uh, in the outdoor market. So that means that people who, who own shares get no income from that. So, so there, there, there is the balance of it as well. But I suppose the final argument I'd make though is that one of, um, Clems does exist in a competitive market. You know, staff can go elsewhere and the risk for Clems is if staff aren't happy, then maybe they will. So that is the challenge is how do you find the balance of actually ensuring that your staff actually do feel well looked after. Now we are where we are having, you know, I think we can probably safely say now come through the worst. Yeah. And just, just on that, Tim, to your point, the, um, the profit, uh, as a percentage of revenue, uh, interestingly, it went up from 13.5 in 2019, percent, um, 13.5%, up to 15.5% in 2020. So the fact they've actually increased their profit margin. Yeah, absolutely, because, of course, revenues dropped, but profit stayed the same. And let me bring this back around, Tim, to what you were saying before in terms of the staff and the options there in terms of you know, staff can leave, but also in terms of the reputation that Clemenger Group, the agencies within the group had. If you look at the leadership recently, uh, we've seen Gail Weil depart Cleminger, Melbourne. Uh, prior to that, of course, Nick Garrett was there uh, and Gail took his position. Uh, then also 
CHE proximity. We've recently seen the departure of Chris Howitson and Ant White with Justin Hind uh, stepping in there. Uh, across the ditch as well with Colenso BBDO, we've seen Scott Coldham depart and also Edwin Rosells over there depart uh, to Accenture. There's been some significant shifts at the top of Clemenger Group agencies. They've long been held as one of the or, or a group of agencies that performs at a very high level. How do you think this is going to affect them moving forward when you then also throw into the mix now what seems to be a bit of a dissatisfaction from staff within the group? Yeah, look, if you're being, I guess, uh, charitable, you describe the group as being in a kind of period of transition at the moment. It's always been a group that's moved at different speeds. So for instance, Colenso in Auckland has for many years been seen one of the 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 world's great uh, creative uh, agencies. Interesting that Special Group was just recognised for that globally by uh, Campaign Magazine out of the, out of the UK recently. Um, Melbourne has never been far behind in terms of Clemenger BBDO Melbourne. So that you know that that for years has had that reputation, but has had a lot more change at the top in the last few years than than I can remember. More at the management side than the creative side, but but there has been a, a lot of change there. We then saw CHEP CHE Proximity come up, really come up under Chris Harrison before he left. And some of the, the the lessons and the hope was to kind of create a means of operating that could go across the whole group. And the fact that Chris and his creative partner, Ant White, left so quickly uh, or relatively quickly after they tried to take that CHEP um, model across to the rest of the group suggests that probably that was a a job not quite done. And then you get Clems in Sydney, which is, has, you know, has, has always been like a sort of, you know, a kind of engine room chugging along, delivering profits, yet always promises to be great and never quite seems to deliver. You know, the number of times I've, I, I've been in there over the years and, you know, whoever the kind of the management team is at the time sort of tells me, you should see what's in the pipeline. And it never quite seems to come through. You know, there's always promise. Um, but I guess I can't think of a time when all of the, the different Clems group agencies are all, you know, they're not, you know they've got very high standards so if you compare them to the rest of the industry they're pretty good but by their own high standards they're on a bit of a low at the moment so um so yeah the real challenge now is you know it'll be the staff that get them out of that and if there's dissatisfaction with the staff how do they find some way of restarting and getting back on track and of course, you, you mentioned Clemenger Sydney and a, another agency, which semi recently, it, it certainly wasn't uh, uh, super recent, that uh, went through a, a leadership change as well. And now, of course, uh, Pete Bozolkowski is leading that agency, having come from uh, VML YNR, but a, a significant uh, story to, to keep on following and, and one we'll be watching with interest. Uh, but coming up next, an Aussie influx, the rising number of senior Australian media and marketing professionals returning home from overseas roles. (music) 
Since the global pandemic hit, there's been a steady stream of Australians returning home to both big and small positions within the world of media and marketing. Yesterday, Coles announced Samantha McLeod as GM of Brand, Digital and Design, returning from 10 years in the UK. Last week, Group N confirmed Seb Rennie will come back home from a stint in Canada to take up the role of Chief Investment Officer. We've also heard of plenty more, including former Netflix CMO Jackie Lee Joe, former Bureau CEO Nick Smith, and former Dollar Shave Club ECD Matt Knapp. Cal, you've been looking into this um, for us, which is quite appropriate, actually, because you recently came home from a stint overseas. Uh, why are so many people coming back at the moment? Is this just a COVID thing? Yes, Demo. Um, and yeah, there are plenty more on top of who you've already named there. But I think um, a lot of it is semi-COVID related. I think uh, COVID has been in a big part a push um, or maybe just made people realise that now is the time to move home. Uh, and we're seeing this largely within senior roles, um, not so much in the kind of junior roles, but I think people who have the capacity to to make that move, which is quite a serious thing to do in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but yeah, just for context, I think as of January, the most recent recent numbers reported were that 430,000 Australians have returned um, from living overseas since March when things kind of shut down. Um, and on top of that being one point, uh, one, one fifth, sorry, of Australia's highly skilled expat um, kind of community uh so, yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's hard to say specifically, but I think COVID has been the push that a lot of people have um, maybe been looking for. We've seen a lot of these senior executives come back to roles already. We've certainly written a lot of those announcement stories, uh, but is that generally the trend that you're seeing? They've got something lined up here already, or are there a number as well coming back to consultancy roles or, or freelance roles where they're just offering out their help? Yeah, I think um, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Obviously, coming back with the promise of a job lined up does help uh, potentially bring people back. For example, um, a couple that you named, and then we've got Chris Brown is um, the new CMO at McDonald's coming back from NYC, uh, New York. Uh, Jane Huxley, the new CEO of R Media, has moved back from Spotify in the UK. And then on top of that, um, I spoke to Scott Bilalis, the new Clems Melbourne GM moving back from New York. So it definitely does help um, moving back, especially uh, having a, an established job to come back in. But also um, we are seeing a few people coming back into more consulting roles, for example, Jackie Lee Joe, former CMO, uh, CMO at Netflix. The irony of all this, I feel, and you and I, Cal, have been looking at this a bit, is that some of the people we have talked to have suggested that in the the more junior to mid-level roles, there's a massive talent shortage at the moment. It's definitely an employee market. Tim, I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on, on this. So also having been uh, the owner of a business which uh, hired a, a number of people, be they Australian or um, of another nationality, um, what should the industry be doing at this stage to try and compensate for the huge lack of talent in those junior to, to medium roles? And have you seen it like this before, Tim? Look, I suppose there's a couple of things to unpick there. So I, I came to Australia in 2006 and at that point it felt like 
every other person joining a media agency was a Brit. Now, what was different maybe that time around is, is you know, I think what, what Cal's identified this time is one of the themes is people returning, whereas that time around it was, it was you know, sort of people coming to Australia for the first time. Like there were so many. We actually, we talked about business ideas, you know, even when I was back on B&T of, of you know, ways to kind of, you know, create some sort of educational package for cultural education package for for Brits coming into Australia to, uh, to you know, learn that, uh, yeah, in Australia, Eddie Maguire, who presents the games show, is also the CEO of Channel Nine, and that's quite normal for Australia. And um, there's this there's this thing called AFL, which everyone calls football. This thing called NRL that everybody calls football, but football is called soccer, so don't call that football. And um, just stuff like that that um, you, you know, it felt that we could could easily have put together, you know, a, an hour long or half day program for the sheer number of British executives coming in. Um, and one of the things that time round was the visas were very friendly to it. So the four, five, seven visa gave people four years, um, and then was re- was renewable as well, and quite easily renewable. And it was a route to permanent residency and citizenship. And there was an amazing tax perk that it was called LAFA, living away from home allowance. The so unjust, and I say this as somebody who who was lucky enough to claim it. Basically, you could claim back all of your cost of accommodation against tax, which is so ridiculously advantageous against Australians. So that loophole did close. But that was another reason why um, agencies were able to recruit people from overseas and probably at a slight discount because they knew that they'd be be getting that. So, um, uh, so the fact that we've got a talent shortage now is... I must admit, I'm a bit surprised to hear that because it, it sort of certainly felt like the, the, the you know, we, we we were maybe sort of four or five years in the past of that big surge in media agencies looking for overseas talent and, and, and knowledge. It felt like we, to a certain extent, had skilled up and to a certain extent, particularly on media agency side, they tended to actually shrink a bit as well. So... You know, I wondered what that does say about a the industry's reputation if it's not bringing people in at the new end. You know, what why aren't they you know choosing to choosing that as an option? And I guess that question is, you know, why? You know, is it that agencies, you know, maybe creative agencies, maybe media agencies are are now actually seen as a bit of a sunset industry? You know, so why why would the best and brightest come to this industry? And if that is the case, then obviously that's a big challenge for, you know, not only in individual companies, but also the, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the industry associations that, 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 that represent them on, on doing a better job at creating pathways into the industry. Yeah, really interesting point. I think one of the other things that, that Cal and I sort of saw was that there seems to be a reticence of people to move from agency to agency or brand to brand at the moment because they feel secure in their role with everything going on around, which kind of ties back to what you were saying before about Clemens Group and and will there be a, a group of people leaving the agency? Maybe they're not. Maybe they just feel it's safer at the moment to stay where they are. But really interesting point and quick plug for Zoe Wilkinson's piece uh, a few weeks ago on creative agency talent, which loops into this. Do have a read of that if you're interested in this topic but coming up next Xander Wilson will be chatting with ticker CEO Aaron Young
The Form Umbrella 360 Reimagined Agenda is here. After the challenges of 2020, this year's lineup not only welcomes leading industry executives, but also some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment. With a wealth of challenging industry topics set to be tackled by the people who know them best, you can't afford to miss out on the return of Australia's leading media and marketing conference. Run across three different venues. You can check out the full program now at mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360. Former Sky News reporter and bureau chief Aaron Young launched streaming news service Ticker in 2019, and in that time, its expansion has been rapid. There's been a steady stream of hires, and they're about to move offices again. Uh, so, Aaron, for those in the industry who might not be familiar with Ticker, how would you describe it to marketers, brands, and, and anyone else in the industry that's interested? Yeah, great to be with you, Xander, and uh, the Mumbrella team, of course. Um, look, basically, we are an inner urban, stateless news network. So we don't cover house fires in Brisbane, but we will tell you what's going on in the world that will impact your life and your finances. Our um, average person that we talk about is like a 28, 29-year-old who works for a Deloitte or a KPMG, lives within a 10 to 15K ring of a CBD anywhere in the world because um, they travel a lot or could travel a lot, miss traveling a lot, um, love the finer things in life and are looking for things, get their news from lots of different places. And we wanted to try and bring a lot of those places together. So we cover cryptocurrency, uh, we cover global politics, we cover climate change, not from a political standpoint, from what is business doing standpoint. Um, We cover breaking news. We're massive on breaking news. We're both a news channel that's 24-7 for free, um, as you mentioned, streaming, but also we are a website where we break everything down. So we try and cover everything. Yeah. And what can you tell us about your business model, maybe when it started and, and how it might have changed since then? A lot has changed because it's had to, um, obviously the pandemic, but before then had a phone call with a potential investor who it was, it sounded like it was a crazy thing, but she was a media investor and she says, we don't like to invest in businesses that rely on advertising or on subscriptions. And I'm thinking, well, what on earth else is there? So I went for a bike ride and and thought, I'm not going to stop this bike ride until I have come up with the answer. And so started working out that on the first day we launched, We had over a 1,000 pitches. Like, it was unbelievable. People wanted to be interviewed, even if they had never heard of this channel before. And in a sense, like, imagine how long it would take to get um, a large enough audience for advertisers to get a return on investment or to the marketing campaign that you would have to spend to get people to subscribe to something they've never heard of before. It's fine if you're a Disney Plus. It's fine if you're Stan and you're relying on Hollywood programming and you're first to market as they were. We are first to market in the sense of a streaming news world, but I'm not entirely convinced that a large number of people used to getting news from the ABC and BBC are going to pay for something they've never heard of before. So we decided that the best thing to do was to create partnerships and also um, a business model which essentially turned the editorial into advertising but in a really smart way that puts integrity on top of the roof. If you'd said to me editorial is advertising, I would have freaked out for a huge part of my career. But we have about 70 interviews a day and around half of those people buy their clips after they've done the interview. They're not forced to come on and pay. Um, We don't charge them if they come on for an interview. But if they want the IP rights, if they want us to do their marketing, which we then did, um, that becomes a completely different story. Just to go into the marketing, um, last summer or the summer before last, I was reading the book about the founder of McDonald's. And in it, he was talking about, you know, the fight to essentially upsell. And so we had the clips from the interviews where, you know, a couple of hundred bucks 
But what we worked out during this time was that people wanted more. If you are a business doing something great, it's one thing to get that clip of you being on TV, being interviewed by a journalist and sharing it with your own network. But what about if you could actually have that media company share it to their network and then send people to your website? And then all of the additional things that Facebook and Google allow businesses to do these days. So we embraced Google and Facebook. We embraced from a journalism side what they do for businesses to put people in touch with a new audience. And they just went gangbusters. People loved it. They had never had that before. And it was part educating the market and part figuring it out ourselves and being slightly ahead of that rolling ball from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is how it's felt this whole time. Yeah. And what's your audience like now looking at audience figures and, and how's that grown? And, and, and also did COVID help with that? Did it hinder that? I think it helped in many ways. Um, the first way is that when we first began in the middle of 2019, having someone appear uh, for an interview via Zoom or video link was seen as, you know, a little bit annoying, frustrating. And then all of a sudden, the anchors started hosting from home uh, because of the pandemic. And this idea of people communicating, and we were doing it in our workplaces all of a sudden, suddenly it became quite normalized, which was how much of our business operated. Having 70 people in your studio each day would become a catastrophic logistical nightmare, not to mention that during COVID, you couldn't. So having people be able to zoom in, uh, in a sense, we use different software than that, is big. But it also allowed us to quickly expand overseas. So we worked out that there was no great benefit to us being an Australian news channel. We've already got two, Sky and ABC, and they do a great job at their particular markets. Um, we could have tried to just focus on that. And then we saw Ausbiz come along and we thought, well, like that's great for them, but there is a wonderful market opportunity. So we opened it to the US. Now, I had a look at our figures on our website yesterday. Australia accounts for, let's say, a third. Another third comes from the US and the rest come from everywhere else, from Singapore to Malaysia to India. Um, and we continue to grow outside of Australia just as much as we're growing inside of Australia at the same time. So as I said, stateless, right? I bet what you care about, Xander, the websites you look at, there is someone roughly your age in London or in New York or in San Francisco or in Auckland or in Singapore looking for the same stories, looking for the same investment opportunities, um, and that's what we cater to. There are plenty of places to find pictures of the house fire in Brisbane, but I've just been of that belief that unless that was your house, you probably don't care. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that as sort of like a stateless uh, way of being. And and as you mentioned, I think at the well, top- Well, I mean, let's, but let's jump in there, right? Facebook isn't an Australian company. Google isn't an Australian yeah. company. YouTube, your apps, your iPhone, everything we use and consume as media. I mean, it was all local because once upon a time, it was a tower in Willoughby or a tower on the top of Mount Dandenong and you were local because that's all you could get to. We are creating a business from scratch for where we are today and where the market is today. We are not trying to change as many of our friends in the larger media companies are. We wish them well. We are also not here to try and change anybody or even compete with anybody. I could just see a market that wasn't being catered for. So do you think that that gives you a huge competitive advantage in terms of you are, as you say, watching some of these large news companies really try and change their model and 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 perhaps take a while to change their model? And, and I also wanted to ask you as well your thoughts on, on linear television, given your 
and you know you're, you've had past experience on on TV. Do you think that linear TV is commanding more spend than it really should be at the moment? That's an interesting one. <laughs> uh, look, you know, keep the dream alive, right? You know, I still um, hold old CDs from when I was you know, 22, hoping that I can one day turn 22 again. Um, I think that the ad industry has woken up. I did an interview yesterday um, with the CEO of Starcom, and I've got a couple more today as well. And in those interviews, they were talking about how they've actually had to um, uh, re-engage with their own clients to say, free-to-air television has changed. They acknowledge themselves that it has changed. The TV industry linear is trying to get rid of overnight ratings. Once upon a time, that would never happen. they're relying more on seven pluses and nine nows and 10 play, et cetera. However, the problem is, is they aren't able to get the same amount of revenue for advertising per eyeball on those streaming services that the TV networks have compared to terrestrial original free-to-air TV. And that is a, a huge challenge. And one of the reasons I decided not to go down the path of advertising, that isn't to say that we won't go one day, but I can spend, I can have a whole sales team trying to chase 30-second commercials, or I can have journalists doing interviews and people buy their clips in the end. Well, that money looks the same color to me. So I look towards linear television, and yep, at Sky for a very long time, um, I would stand in the same position, same place somewhere I get sent to a flood or a disaster. The joke was, if I turned up to your neighborhood, you're stuffed because something terrible has <laughs> happened to you. Um, and uh, you know, I would stand there and say the same thing for eight hours because that was my job. It was so you could tune in at any time and you'd see it. These days, everything's changed. Twitter, you can watch that one report I've done any time of the day until it's changed and a new report comes out. So that is changing. What I find really interesting is if you're a Channel 9, for example, and you're looking at this new streaming world, and they're really good because they've got stands. They're ahead of 7 and they're ahead of 10 um, and probably ahead of the ABC because they can hey, charge for it. Um, and they've gone into sport, what would they do with news? Given that news makes up such a massive part of their free-to-wear daytime schedule. Nine's got news from 5 a.m., then the Today Show, then the morning news, then the afternoon news, then the 6 p.m. news, then a current affair, then the nighttime news. If they created and broke out a standalone news channel, that wouldn't be competing with Seven or with the ABC or with Ticker. That would be competing with their own free-to-wear where they're making money out of it. So I look towards the challenges that they have and I try and see these things. And you talk about some of you know what we do in terms of opportunities. I saw a job ad on LinkedIn about three weeks ago from a news organisation talking about how they were about to revamp their entire um, their entire website to be long form journalism. They were used to doing video, etc. The next day after seeing that, I spent time thinking to myself, why would they do that? What are the opportunities? They've got a partnership with Google. Google must be telling them we've got to get in first. So the following week, we relaunched our entire website. Um, looks fantastic, I've got to say. We had been kind of been more focused on apps than the website. And then that realization of the penny drop that, hey, we are all in a world of Google. We love Google. we got to love Google. Channel 9 has to love Google. Channel 7 has to love Google, even the ABC. That's where everybody is. They're the ones paying the bills. And we have an opportunity to completely change our business overnight anytime we need to. Um, and that's that's one of the great things, right? Recessions are meant to lead to businesses like ours starting up and, and growing. And that's what we've been doing. 
Yeah, and we were talking about um, the the amount of audience you have overseas, and and your fellow ex Sky colleague Jackson Williams has just started yeah. broadcasting for Ticker Live out of Singapore. How did that come about, and is that the first of many outposts? Well, it's funny. We've actually led. Apparently, whenever now someone leaves Sky, the rumor is always that they're coming to Ticker, and that <laughs> is not the case. I might add. Um, I, I heard some goss the other day from some friends there going, "Oh, this person's left," and everyone's saying they're going to Ticker, and I'm like. I haven't spoken to that person since I left Sky two years ago. Um, look, I loved Jackson because, uh, well, I've hired him three times, I might add, uh, first from the project, then he came to Sky and got made redundant, and then I hired him again six months later when another job came up that we could put him into, and then he went to Brisbane and then across to New Zealand. When you work for Sky News, um, it is a, a very tough but wonderful place where, as a journalist, you get to do so much. Um, as I mentioned, eight hours of live crosses will teach you anything. They always say that when people go from a network to the news channel, you get found out very quickly if you can't actually do the job. At a network, you can have makeup artists and producers and, you know, even someone to roll your own auto cue. Whereas in a news channel environment, um, uh, Jim Middleton, who came to us from the ABC years ago, said it's a bit like a Hollywood set. There's nothing behind it. You've got to do everything. Otherwise, you fall over. Um, so that's what I loved about Jackson. So when the opportunity came up, he'd left Sky. I heard about it and thought, well, I'm, I'm about to, I'm thinking of launching in Singapore. How would you feel? And he's like, I'd love to. And he had experience of running a one-man band operation in New Zealand uh, for a few years for Sky, done a wonderful job. Um, someone that I like, trust, really liked what we were doing. He's the perfect ticker viewer. Uh, so why not make a perfect ticker viewer one of our people? In terms of your question, what happens next? Well. Um, I'm really transparent, as you can see, um, and that is something that I hope works for us. But San Francisco will be next, then London. People say to me, why San Francisco and not New York? Well, one, the time zone. But secondly, that's where all the startup companies are. It's where um, heaps, it's where Apple is. It's where Silicon Valley is, obviously. Uh, NASA's got heaps of stuff there. Fred Shabesta from finder.com, I was in Sydney recently and had breakfast with him, and he said, why aren't you going to New York? And I said, well, Tell me your experience about going to the West Coast. So well, we got to LA and we were trying to do all these interviews and all the journalists kept saying, you know, I've got to go talk to New York and we just never hear back. And I said, well, while they're doing that, you're going to come to Ticker and we're going to get all those great interviews because if we're based in New York, we're competing with Bloomberg and CNBC and Cheddar for your money and your time, whereas we're on the West Coast where you are. Doesn't that make sense? And that's what Ticker is. We just want to make sense. We basically try and have a common sense approach to any any problem that's thrown at us. What can we do? I've got a great chief operating officer um, who's my best mate, Jeb Batali. You know, the day that I decided to start Ticker, I told him about it. And this is a guy who probably believes in the dream even more than me. Um, and I keep pinching myself that, um, you know, I, I'm a single man, but I have this magnificent business partner. Um, I've been able to literally find my equivalent in ways that I'm not great at and he's wonderful at. And, and that's that's kind of how the partnerships work. And we just sit and we we come out of meetings and we go, we've got to do this. So we, we left Sydney, um, had a wonderful visit to Channel 9. We came back and said, you know what, we've got to move. So literally we called a real estate agent the next day. Um, and, you know, we've got this great kind of building where we are now, but it's a very much a startup kind of place. And we're starting to bring in executives and CEOs and we just want it to to look schmick. We can't compete with a privately listed company like the Nine Entertainment Company. But hey, commercial real estate's cheap these days, so off we go. Obviously, the that growth is seeing you move to to an, to another new office. 
tell us about the the new location and 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 everything that comes with it. Yeah, well, as you know, I was a few minutes late to this podcast because I was over there with the people who are about to climb in the roof and do all of our cabling over the next couple of weeks. It's the old Holden uh, headquarters in Fisherman's Bend. Um, And when we had gotten back from that trip to Sydney, we went and had a look at a whole bunch of buildings which were kind of like warehouses with an office on top. And I thought the warehouse would make a cool studio and newsroom, but actually it was just really cold and annoying. And then the final one, he said, oh, like the real estate agent said, oh, I've got this place around the corner. You should come and check it out. And it was the old Holden building. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time reporting out the front of there about their, you know, 7-3 structure in a month and hundreds of employees getting the chop and then eventually its demise. Um, But what I liked about the building was we're actually in the CEO's suite, the former managing director's suite. Um, The whole, we've got the whole, the boardroom for Holden will become our newsroom. The CEO's office becomes our main studio. Uh, We've hired a a set designer, Mel Nichols, who I worked with at Sky, who's just recently finished Channel 7's studios as well. He's coming up with this unbelievable design. You're going to feel like you're in New York when you see this. We've never seen anything like it in Australia. Um, You know, we're a company with no debt. We have grown simply from revenue. Um, We, I just believe in that simplicity, right? It's like, when we first began, we had all these people going, oh, raise $2 million and, and this New York or San Francisco-style startup culture that just doesn't exist in Australia. And my view has been, no, we're a small business. Stuff this startup crap. We're a small business, and small businesses grow if they have a great business. They don't grow off false pretenses. I'll definitely have to hit you up when I'm next down in Melbourne. Anyway, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast today. Wonderful. Great to be here. Thank you so much and for everyone to listen. And that's it for this week. Xander, Liv, Cullen, Tim, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Damien. Thank you.